Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, today's episode is an experiment to stretch out disciplinary boundaries by pairing up academic debates of philosophy and engineering and of course anthropology. We are delighted to have with us academics and practitioners representing those different disciplines, Marcus Duvel, Simone Abram and Gunther Bombards. What are the personal definitions of multidisciplinarity that make sense to Simone, Gunther and Marcus? We discuss proliferation of academic output, disciplines and increasing number of journals. Our speakers share their worldviews on disciplinary boundaries and experiences with complex cultural engagements which do not always give the intended results. Listen to the episode to follow this reflexive conversation about intellectual development and curing academic changes. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, it's our first podcast episode, and, and maybe before I start, the origin of this episode sits in the previous podcast episode, which is a conversation I had with Simone about her work, and I got fascinated about... Uh, how does an anthropologist work with a philosopher and what are some of the challenges around the multidisciplinarity? Uh, and we had a first conversation where we kind of decided to broaden this up a bit further and, and sit in an exploration of multidisciplinary itself as a concept. And um, now this is where we are here in this uh, format together. Before we go into the subject, um, I would like to, to give each of you kind of a, an opportunity to shortly introduce yourself to, to our audience and the people that do not know you. And I propose we do it like popcorn style. So whoever wants to start, please feel free. I'm Simone Abram and I'm a professor of anthropology at Durham University. And I'm also a director of the Durham Energy Institute. And um, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Marcus and uh, Gunter and um, colleagues of theirs a few years ago when we decided we would work on an energy ethics uh, network, which we have done. Okay. My name is uh, Gunter Bombards. I'm from um, assistant professor in the Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. Um, I started studying nuclear physics, so a master in uh, nuclear uh, physics, but was always interested in philosophy, so I continued uh, to do philosophy and ethics, and I did a PhD on the ethics of uh, nuclear waste in uh, the Belgian Nuclear Research Center, where we were in an in interdisciplinary group about uh, 20 years ago, where I really learned and uh, learned to love uh, interdisciplinary uh, research. And currently, as I'm working in a technical university, as a philosopher, um, my daily life is um, is interdisciplinary, I would say, in, in, in my interactions with, uh, with the engineers and other disciplines uh, of the social sciences in the, in the university. Yeah, my name is Marcus Duvel. Um, I'm a philosopher. I have done for the last 30 years uh, work... On the borderline between fundamental questions in philosophical ethics and more applied ethics, 
uh, I was dealing with topics of climate change, energy ethics, bioethics, but my main interest is how these more very concrete questions can be discussed against the background of fundamental philosophical concepts, human rights, looking to the future and uh, yeah, discussing the broader picture of what it means to be a human being. Wow. So, as concrete. <laughs> <laughs> as concrete as possible. So, yeah. <laughs> Marcus, since you were the kind of the last introducing yourself, um, I want to um, ask you if it's possible to kick us off into this wonderful conversation around multidisciplinarity with, um, with your own personal definition of how do you define that? What, what is it for you, multidisciplinarity? How to say, I, I think it's, um, there is not one type of multidisciplinarity. Uh, so there, each form of collaboration between disciplines is different, so to speak. And it's, it depends on the type of questions you are interested in. So I've done projects, for example, about uh, how to deal with human-animal hybrids uh, and that was a project with biologists, uh, physicians, lawyers, philosophers, blah, blah, blah. And the dynamic was the topic, so to speak. But uh, I was in other corporations where the um, multidisciplinarity itself is a problem. Yeah. So are you just connecting disciplines in a quite arbitrary way? Uh, then normally that creates a lot of problems. Uh, or do you have a, yeah, or is it a topic of your collaboration how you think about the relationship between disciplines? Uh, so wh why are you interested in talking with someone from a completely different angle? Yeah. So that, that are, uh, there's the interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity is a topic by itself, and yeah, that's different depending on the topic you are dealing with. I tend to think of um, that there are, there are sort of two main aspects of this which relate to what, what we mean by discipline in the first place. So on the one hand, there are different traditions of thought based in different literatures, different concerns and so forth, and that to, seems to me the kind of core intellectual challenge. And then on the other hand, there's the sort of political institutions of ac academia which challenge, sort of channels us into separate institutions with different um, allegiances. Um, and I think a lot, of the, a lot of the push to interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity or whatever you want to call it has come from the second side, which is to say, why shouldn't I work with somebody in another department if we've got a shared interest, you know? And that, in a way, is the easiest one to overcome. But what I think is really, um, well, both challenging and very interesting is that we try to communicate across different ways of thinking. And in a way, that's the anthropologist's goal all the time, isn't it? So um, I think, um, you know, the idea that we can learn somebody from, we can learn from somebody who thinks in a very different way seems to me a very natural approach to, to learning and intellectual development and experience of the world. So that's what I'm looking for when I engage in um, multidisciplinary projects. What about I, uh, you, Gunther? 
Uh, I can agree with that. So for me, it's also uh, fascinating. Um, uh, so, and as I said, um, I think I learned philosophy uh, in an interdisciplinary way. So I was I was in a very interdisciplinary group. So my, my uh, formation of a philosopher, or the becoming a philosopher, was in an interdisciplinary way. And the research I did was always very. I was always very interested in in empirical uh, results in social psychology or in sociology. Um, so for me, this was an, a natural thing. Also, I think because I was partially also trained as, as a nuclear physicist, it also a focus on, on uh, a very strong focus on, on the role of empirics. Um, so um, in, in that sense, I say it's, it's for me a natural habitat. On the other hand, I think it's also, even after many, many years working in interdisciplinary um, projects, it remains also very difficult. Uh, so there are a lot of struggles, and um, maybe <laughs> because I'm slightly getting older, um, sometimes I say, yeah, let's do something uh, monodisciplinary. I really like to meet people who think alike and just at the ease of working, uh, go really into depth in, in, and find uh, souls who think alike. Um, but most of my work is not like that. It's, it's, it's with, mm. with people who think differently, and I, I really, really like this. Now, if you want to theorize that in, in okay, what is multidisciplinarity? Um, for me, I, I it's it's a maybe probably too simple and and probably different disciplines will <laughs> think differently in this. But I see a difference between multidisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, and transdisciplinarity. So for me, the multidisciplinarity is is bringing things together, and everybody stays in his own discipline, and and you can really have like building stones together. Transdisciplinarity is that, uh, or interdisciplinarity is that you really interact with each other, so you. You, you are looking for um, concepts that are different in the disciplines and you start to change these concepts within disciplines. And for me, the transdisciplinarity, as, as I use it, I know that different people use it differently. Uh, the transdisciplinarity is that you um, go so far in this that you, uh, you are in a new field and you, uh, you develop like an, almost a new discipline that covers what before was covered by by uh, different disciplines, and so you really make a, almost a new discipline. Um, and and I think often people see this as a, as the sumum, and so this is the best thing. But I I don't agree. And so having a multidisciplinary work or a monodisciplinary work is also a, a good thing. Yeah. So. I wonder, is it, is it kind of then a fallacy to assume that we can advance scholarship through improving multidisciplinary collaboration? Or, or do you, you don't see necessarily a, a connection between that? For me, a discipline is, a, is an approach. And you have different approaches with different disciplines. Mm -hmm. And you can combine it in different ways, and then you have diff even more approaches. And a, a different approach will have a different result in approaching the, 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 the problem. So you can have, um, if you have a problem on, on energy justice, you can sit together with two people, uh, two philosophers uh, mm -hmm. who know a lot about uh, justice, and you get a certain result. This can have can be very beneficial, 
But if you want uh, a very pragmatic, uh, policy-oriented uh, result uh, for um, at, at a rather short time, because things are urgent in the, in the political arena, it might be relevant and it might be much better that you that you combine it and that you have an interdisciplinary approach. You will come up with other things. Some things will be less in depth, but mm-hmm. other things might be broader. So. Um, for me, it's not one is better than the other. And so in your question, is it a fallacy to improve? Then I would say yes. And so I'm not sure whether you improve, but you have, you have another approach. And depending mm-hmm. on what you want, you, you need to, to select the right approach or monodisciplinary or transdisciplinary or multidisciplinary mm-hmm. and pick the right disciplines as well. Yeah, I think we're really clearly in a kind of moment at the moment with um, sort of fashion popularity of, you know, multidisciplinary will solve all our problems. And you can understand why that comes about, because if you try to solve a kind of wicked or global problem from one angle only, you'll only ever get one entry into it. But the idea that somehow by bringing disciplines together, that solves everything is mm-hmm. it's obviously a bit misguided. So I think perhaps there's been a, in order to break down some conservative barriers and institutional barriers and political barriers, there has been a very strong push to um, mm. encouraging people to work together, but perhaps um, perhaps that's achieved its aims now, and perhaps we don't need to always be forced into uh, combining things that perhaps have a right. You know, as I was going to say, you know, some projects are, or some questions are better addressed um, one aspect at a time. Yeah, perhaps there is a background problem, and that is we have increasing in multi- or interdisciplinarity because we have the specialization of academia. So uh, if you look how academia developed over the last 50 years, the number of disciplines increased and uh, dramatically, so to speak. So you have uh, more and more incredibly specialized uh, disciplines and uh, that enforces, so to speak, uh, multidisciplinarity to, to get uh, any form of uh, insight and um, if I'm quite I'm not fully sure uh, whether that is a yeah a development we should welcome yeah so um, because um, it makes it more and more difficult to understand what the other is doing yeah so um, 50 years ago, you would speak about uh, history, philosophy, and very, the broad uh, uh, topics, and everybody had a basic understanding what is going on in these disciplines. Yeah, while nowadays you meet all the time people who come from a discipline you had probably not heard that this discipline exists. Yeah, and um, that makes it very complicated to engage in interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity because the basic requirement is that you have an understanding what the question of the other is. So uh, the worst thing is uh, multidisciplinary meetings where uh, everybody has wrong expectations about the discipline of the other. That can, that's really a mess. Yeah, then uh, you need hours to uh, clarify 
prejudices. Uh, so people uh, talk uh, for an hour and then, then they understand, okay, probably the other is dealing with a completely different question than I thought he would do. Yeah. And that makes uh, the things complicated. And uh, I see that as a result of uh, specialization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dynamic, yeah. But then it's then it's not uh, something that you can um, uh, solve eh? because the the knowledge grows <laughs> at a at a high speed, and and as a consequence, I, I follow what you say, uh, Marcus, is that that there is yeah more more disciplines come into existence, eh? so you cannot uh, stop the growth, <laughs> the proliferation of disciplines, I would say. No, my aim is not to stop it, but mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think in the same line as you mentioned before, uh, I don't think that transdisciplinarity should be an aim in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we should uh, rather uh, uh, understand the complexity we are creating and uh, try to deal with it uh, in a rational way. But um, uh, we have to be aware that the more disciplines, the more mm. complicated is it to engage with each yeah. other. Yeah. And you were talking, Marcus, about the complexity like we are creating. Like who, who is the we in this, uh, in this statement for you? Who is creating this complexity? There, there is no mastermind who uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> decides that things are emerging. And um, mm. there are uh, different actors. So, for example from society, industry comes to academia and says we are interested in something and suddenly new disciplines emerges. Mm -hmm. Or you see um, disciplines um, are more and more fine-graining their methodologies and suddenly they see, okay, within one institute people are doing completely different things and then suddenly new disciplines uh, emerge. But, yeah, it's, there is no <clears throat> no plan behind it. Mm. I was um, a few, I think, weeks ago, I was at this uh, conference where now the new hype is kind of this concept of exponential growth. The fact that, you know, somehow the way we are producing knowledge is, 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 is it's happening at this accelerated rhythm, um, and um, it was an interesting conference because there was this, you know, people that were talking about this, okay, the technology has made this exponential growth um, happening even faster to the point that we, we have to deal with the, the, the rhythm of growth of, of everything that is happening around us. And there was somebody else sitting in that conference uh, which says, well, it, it, is, it is not real. It, it's just that we think things are happening faster, but actually things are happening at exactly the same speed. It's just that the ecosystem of transfer of information that we are surrounding each other with has uh, compressed uh, the way we look at time. So I, I found I found that quite quite interesting thing to, to kind of sit with. Um, like is is it really is it really speed and is it really like like or is knowledge developing in kind of like a similar pace but something else is changing in our in our social hive mind or in our ecosystem that makes it uh, appear in in different ways i don't know i'm sorry it maybe it's not a no it's a good it's a good question and i think that there's a there's certainly one or two very clear mechanisms behind that one is the um the you know the audit culture of production of academic text mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that you know people need to have 
publications by their name in order to keep their jobs, in order for their university to get a good reputation, and it's very much a kind of managerial process, isn't it? And certainly since the introduction of things like the research assessment in, in Britain in the 90s, you've seen a massive proliferation of journals because it's good to get your own publication. It's even better to have your own journal. It doesn't mean that the kind of quality of things being published is somehow <laughs> improving or escalating or anything like that. It just means that there's more stuff around and more to get through. So in that sense, I don't think it's speed, but I think there's a kind of proliferation and a increasing sense that none of us could ever be on top of the publications in our field because they are now just so many. That's interesting in its own right that a lot of that work would have been going on but wouldn't have been in the public domain previously. You know, you might have had a seminar paper that you didn't think you didn't need to publish. I mean, some of the think about some of the, you know, very, um, um, you know, notable scholars who were around when I first started anthropology and they you know, had a handful of publications to their name. Over the, most of their career, but they were, you know, really important ones, and it wasn't seen as a kind of dereliction of duty. Well, maybe for some of them, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a balance somewhere in between publishing every thought you had and um, publishing enough to to make a mark. Yeah, I, I see this link. So I think there are two points mentioned. Uh, one is the 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 way academia is organized, which uh, and so I follow you, Simone. Is is the it creates more disciplines. Uh, if you can create other disciplines, you can create other journals, and it's easier to publish. Uh, so that's that's one part. I I don't follow you, uh, Corina. That that uh, the, the pace of new production is is the same as five years ago, as twenty years ago, and as one hundred years ago. So I think. Um, there is more knowledge production now than there was uh, 100 years ago. Um, and therefore also um, th there can be more disciplines and there can also be more journals and there can be more uh, publications. And so I see two different elements, but they, they both clearly have a link with what is, what is disciplinarity. And so for me, um, you can approach disciplinarity from... A, from a content perspective, so who is thinking what, and is this more or less the same? So yes, that's a discipline. Or how are groups formed? So I think a discipline you can also say is a is a group of a manageable size of uh, peers. Eh? So um, if it becomes too big, it will split into because you cannot read everything anymore. So people start to shift apart, and then it becomes two different disciplines because. Because not because they're talking about different things, but, but but because they don't talk with each other anymore. So and then it becomes two disciplines that need multidisciplinary research to to come together again. So I see. So both what Simona and Marcus was saying about uh, the uh, the the academic and about uh, the proliferation of of knowledge, I see them as as motors of the creation of different disciplines, because you have to have a manageable group. To, um, to discuss with. And perhaps it's, it's a different kind of problem in different disciplines, so to speak. Yeah, so, for example, in philosophy, it's not so clear what knowledge production really means. So, so there are physicians and biologists who deal with COVID at the moment. Yeah, They can tell you 
uh, we now know specific things about COVID, which we didn't know in April 2020. Uh, and that's fully clear, and they can speak about the progress here. While um, I, I'm not fully sure what in my discipline uh, progress really means. So we, we have new perspectives, uh, people come up with new ideas, uh, some people pick up uh, things discussed earlier and reinterpret them. And, and this is a, a, prog- a process where, which is not teleological. So it's not, there's not one uh, final goal. Yeah? So there are other disciplines who just want to know how COVID works. And in the moment when they know how COVID works, they reach their goal, so to speak, and they do something else. And uh, in our discipline, that is not the same. And uh, in so far, I'm not fully sure what I ought to know mm-hmm. in order to say I know everything I need to answer specific questions. Yeah, So that makes uh, the process much more complicated. Um, and um, I'm in, in any case, I don't think that the creation of a new discipline solves anything, yeah? mm-hmm. because then uh, the relationship between these disciplines become an, a new question. Yeah? So, yeah. So, so maybe to add to that, because it made me think when you were talking earlier, Gunther, that you know this is kind of like the nature of the beast, right? You have um, uh, knowledge is produced by engagement of different actors in different ways, and, and it's a kind of a collective process, right, of sense making somehow. And, and in order for a group to do that, it needs to be of a certain size, of a certain dynamic. And once it gets big enough, it kind of gets split into multiple. If I understand correctly, that was what you were um, what you were saying. So, so, so then, I, and then I wonder, Marcus, like, what, what, what makes this kind of collective, diffuse process of um, producing knowledge? What makes it in the mechanism, the social mechanisms, and the system mechanisms that that aggregates or, or blocks or disaggregates, or you know, what, what happens there that is changing? What happens there that is different? That 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 makes it uh, now not work. I, I don't say it doesn't work. Uh, it's just uh, it has another dynamic, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the dynamics uh, is uh, influenced by various factors. So you have internal factors of an uh, academic discourse. Yeah, you you think about something, discuss it with your colleagues, and then you come to insights and new questions and so on. But at the same time, you are responsive to. Developments in society. Yeah, suddenly um, you see problems uh, coming up. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, for example, the the end of the Cold War in 1990 completely changed uh, academia in some sense because perspectives uh, uh, totally changed, and that has nothing to do with inner academic developments. And yeah. those things. Happen and um, of course there are people who are just editing uh, books about Thomas Aquinas and they probably are not uh, they do the same uh, independent of what's happened around them but um, if you are um, 
a, a philosopher or an anthropologist uh, mm. who, who is uh, engaging with uh, contemporary questions, you are influenced, you are responsive to uh, yeah. developments yeah. outside academia. Yeah, and I wonder how do you see the mechanism of publishing kind of or the mechanism of validating what knowledge needs to have visibility or what is knowledge and what is not? Because what I feel from, from my kind of like small little fish in the anthropology uh, publication sea is that there, there's a lot of like ordering and class and, and silencing or, or giving kind of priority to certain voices versus others. It's a kind of an ordering of, 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 of the process of aggregating knowledge that happens via the publishing system. Uh, that in somehow I have experienced it from a very uh, uh, powerless position, huh? um, and I have experiencing it as very like uh, diminishing and, and um, silencing. But I would imagine people that are in more positions of power within this um, system. Um, I see it completely differently, but still it, it feels for me that it, it's, it's a very structured form of what you consider valuable knowledge or, or, or visible knowledge or not. Um, uh, I wonder if that is the case also in biology or like you mentioned COVID, it, it feels there maybe you you have more other ways of structuring what is knowledge or not that, that makes them more maybe objective and less classist or maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not, and it, I think that varies hugely between different sort of spheres. We keep coming back to disciplines, don't we? I mean, mm. notoriously, economics has a very rigid structure of publication. If you're not in this or that American Journal of Economics, then you, you're considered worthless, you know. I don't think anthropology is quite as bad as that, and there's a lot more flexibility. But it was just, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, it was very difficult for a while to publish on energy issues from the social sciences because the Uh, existing journals weren't interested in the topic and the energy journals weren't interested in, in social sciences. And that became so apparent when the journal Energy Research and Social Science was founded because, you know, within two years they'd published a thousand articles. So the, the clamour for, for that space was enormous and suddenly it became possible to discuss all these things because there was somewhere to discuss it. So... I think it's not necessarily a, I mean, obviously some people are game playing. Some people are using it as a position of power to decide whose voice they want to hear. We've all seen that happening. Um, on the other hand, it's, you know, when new ideas come about, new debates uh, emerge, sometimes they don't fit with the debates that are going on in existing journals. So there's a lot going on, I think, in the politics of publishing that isn't just about individuals trying to claim the space of their own, but a lot around the way that things develop over time as well and the way that ideas change and the way that debates move on and, and also the management of journals, you know, who's, who's got the control of what gets published is not necessarily just up to the editors. There can be other, other pressures uh, from the, you know, other, other aspects of publishing you know, that, that, that need to be thought about. But, I mean, I do think it's very unfortunate if you as a, an author feel that, you know, you, you've got something new that you want to say and nobody's prepared to promote it. And I'm sure we've all been there with some something we wanted to write about, which we couldn't find anywhere to place it. So, yeah, there are obviously restrictions. But then, you know, we want restrictions because if there are no restrictions at all, then mm -hmm. there's just a massive information we can't manage. So there is there is um, there is a positive side to that as well. That's the whole point of peer review, isn't it? That there's mm -hmm. some degree of oversight and trustworthiness in the mm -hmm. things that get published. So that's really valuable. Yeah. I think. But uh, perhaps a Another problem is that a lot of uh, researchers 
particular the, the younger researchers who need a uh, looking for positions are uh, publishing quite strategically. So in the they're just assuming what kind of topics uh, will have a chance, and uh, I see that as a as a problem bit. Yeah, so that uh, if there is a debate, it's quite likely that the debate will grow, uh, and um, that's not always uh, advantageous. Yeah, so I I quite often think. Um, there are so many questions I w- would like to be discussed, but uh, I don't see it. And uh, uh, while there are debates where I think, okay, probably everything is already mm. said you can say about <laughs> it, and the debate yeah. is going on. So that's and um, but that's not necessarily that people who are in charge of these journals are enforcing it. It's more a dynamic in the field, uh, which is. Yeah, understandable in the dynamics, but not necessarily desirable. Yeah, and how do you find, I mean, is this a question for the three of you, how do you find the debates that, that are meaningful to you um, and engage in them? Like, do you have a, a way of kind of, of your own formula by which you navigate this space? Well, I think important there is that you not only find information via reading articles. Huh? So there is. Mm. So what we are talking about right now is the a kind of um, selection that happens when you want to publish some ideas in in journals. Uh, the, the the nice uh, example that Simone gave on, on energy justice is is a is a clear one. Um, before this journal existed, there was already a lot of discussion on workshops and on conferences. So there are other uh, places where this these ideas can emerge and, and can can become bigger before they are strong enough to to create their own jur- journal. Eh? So um, and so for me the, the the intriguing question what what both you Marcus and Simona uh, raise is, is uh, what are good restrictions of a discipline? So disciplines need restrictions for um, for quality. Eh? I, I follow that. So if I have, I also, so what you refer to, Simona, everybody has this idea. I have a great idea, but I cannot publish it. There must be restrictions, but uh, you have this great idea, and you say, this, this is so important, why why can't I publish it? And it's because you think it's a good thing, but, but why does the rest of the world <laughs> is not convinced that it is a good thing? And, and for me, that's... Um, I believe that if you try long enough, <laughs> it, you, you can get there, uh, and and this this resistance is also um, and then it becomes even more important and and you have a good thing f- about uh, the scientific community is that you have it is very diverse so I also am I'm currently trying to publish something in a management journal and they are very 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 um, conservative <laughs> it's incredible <laughs> so I. Yeah, I don't know whether I will continue with it. And, and, and so now I have the decision. Will I really go, I really, uh, go for this management journal because I really want to publish it there because th- the message is for the managers and not for the philosophers who will all agree about what I will say. Or will I go to a, a philosophy journal where, where everybody says, yeah, <laughs> this is not new. And so it's, it's also about, Changing subculture and, and changing subdisciplines, mm. and it's a and there I come back to you, what you say, Marcus. Uh, 
do I put time in uh, like working years and years to publish this one article in a in a management uh, discipline, or do I write ten ten articles in a in the same time write ten articles in a in a philosophy discipline? Uh, what do I want? What I do I want to realize in this? Yeah, and there's a, there's a very different voice in different disciplines in different journals as well. Um, I, I wrote something for a um, collection that was supposed to be spanning anthropology and technology, and uh, I thought I'd written it in a really accessible way that anyone could read. And the first comment that came back was, uh, "This sounds just like anthropology." <laughs> I was like, "But why?" <laughs> So it wasn't there was any, nothing wrong with the content. It was just the tone that was off-putting yeah. for somebody who wasn't familiar with it. So that's that's another area around um, around working across disciplines. But I'm still kind of in my mind. I'm still amused by the comment that Marcus made right at the beginning of the conversation about quite often when you try to work between disciplines, you spend the first or often most of the project working out how you've misunderstood one another. And that goes for writing in other journals as well, that you can be making a point that makes perfect sense to you, and then you suddenly realize that one of the key terms that you've used you mean, actually means something completely different for the readers. Um, and then you get the, you know, the whole problem of publishing in a, in a different area it isn't just about where you fit, it's also about the language that you use and the, the way that you communicate. Uh, and you may have a brilliant point that's very relevant but you don't know how to express it in a, it's basically another language, isn't it, or another dialect um, for a different audience. So I don't think we should underestimate those challenges either that are part of the challenge of multidisciplinarity. You, you were talking earlier, Gunther, about the inclusivity, right, like the diversity maybe of the scientific space that you are part of. Um, mm-hmm. for, for, for me, this is, again, something that I haven't uh, experienced myself within my own discipline. Um, I, I feel like I'm missing voices that are more... Um, inclusive and diverse. I'm, I'm missing scholars from, um, yeah, from other parts of the world that are not Western, um, that are not white, that are not men, particularly in the big journals of my own discipline. And I'm missing those voices quoted also in the articles, in the references. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I do not recognize in the way I've approached my own discipline, uh, your comment about diversity. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, maybe Simona, you have a different opinion about, um, about anthropology than I have. I totally see where you're coming from there, Corinna. <laughs> That's definitely a problem in anthropology. Um, but I think probably specifically in European anthropology, or not specifically, mm-hmm. but particularly maybe. Mm-hmm. So there are other debates going on that we need to find a way to be more inclusive about. There's no doubt about that. And certainly when I worked in with teams, including more engineers or scientists, they are much more multinational at the very least. But whether yeah. that's just that people are still um, aligning themselves to the dominant um, narrative or method or, or, or communication, that, that, that's a kind of more subtle question, I think. But yeah. I, I definitely think anthropology has room for different authorial voices. And, and you're talking about this process of, of, of translation, right? Of kind of adapting a certain language to a certain audience that maybe speaks a different language. I felt f- f- when I was trying to kind of like get published into a, a classical anthropological journals is that I was trying to do the same thing. I was trying to 
to build arguments according to voices that I know are quoted there. Um, so somehow the way I judged even or the way I constructed arguments, the way I've built a certain contribution to the discipline got, got, got kind of like uh, completely uh, misconstructed in for myself because I said, just like what you were saying earlier, Marcus, in order to even have a voice in a certain space, you kind of change your own voice. Like, but you, not, you don't only change the voice, but you change the way you approach a certain concept. You change the way you contribute to a debate because if you don't use those other voices to kind of like hold your own opinion towards, you're not even valued in the room as part of the debate. And that makes me wonder, is it really a debate? If you always have the same four or five people, uh, the same, uh, saying the same things. So it's, 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 um, it made me think back in, in the Facebook when there was that controversy with Howe and Salins that, that, that I felt, I felt like so defeated. I was like, are we, are we advancing this field or are we just rehashing yeah. the same things with the same people again? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much we want to say in public about yeah. how just at the moment, but I, I must admit that I was very da- downhearted when I saw that appear because it was a way of reinforcing a canon that I thought we'd yes. made a lot yes. of progress in getting away from in the previous years. So I, I saw it as um, unfortunate. But that, that also, I mean, that's exactly why people start a new journal, isn't it? Because they want to, they want to have a different voice. They want to have different reference points. They want to start a different position. And many of the journals that we now uh, admire are those that started in reaction to more conservative journals or journals that they perceived as more mm-hmm. conservative. Mm-hmm. So that's that's definitely an issue. But at the same time, you know, a journal gets a new set of editors and it can it can shift its perspective quite radically if it's uh, if it's yeah. um, if it's interesting. You know, so we do see that as well. I mean, I think in a, for me, a, a case in point is uh, for Carl because a decision was made at a certain point to turn it from a Dutch to an international journal and really to open it up to new ideas and new themes. And I found that very exciting. You know, areas that I was working in that were definitely not traditional anthropology themes. Suddenly there was a a place to discuss them with other anthropologists. Um, But actually, I'm just thinking that the, the reason that we... The reason that we're here and the three or four of us are here discussing this is that we, uh, we, um, well, for example, Gunter and I and, and a couple of other colleagues, we, we thought we need to try and write something together from our different perspectives. And it might be worth just a moment to, to think about the process that we went through there, because one of the challenges that we had was precisely where are we going to publish this thing? And depending on where we're going to publish, how are we going to write it? Because it will have a different language, a different focus and so forth. And it was actually really difficult, wasn't it, to, to think about where is an environment where we can publish something that is so different from either philosophy or anthropology, because we had to make, you know, find a meeting point. And I, I, I don't, I don't recall that as an easy, <laughs> easy break. I mean, very rewarding, but it was really difficult to see where we were going to take it, wasn't it? Yep, yep. Yeah. And what is the the motivation behind embarking on a on a on a journey like this? I mean, well, it was really interesting for me. I was uh, quite surprised by the whole experience because I think in anthropology we tend to think, you know, a lot of the time people refer to philosophers, take philosophical ideas, apply them to anthropology. But actually what I discovered <laughs> working with people who are actually working in, in philosophy was that, that that's really not what we're talking about. They were doing something completely <laughs> different. Uh, and it was extremely uh, interesting uh, and, and really – I. I I think what I wanted to experience was the what I would 
perhaps crudely describe as the rather more rigorous mode of inquiry. Mm. And I wanted to see what that would do for some slightly more woolly anthropological ideas. Yeah, I, I think I can add to that. So for me, uh, deciding to do these kinds of research is, is for me, is, is uh, targeted or problem-driven. So you, you want to, you're struggling with something and you want to solve it. As so as you say, we want to have a more rigorous approach and maybe philosophy can help us with that. Mm. For me, it's really struggling with um, how should we as philosophers use empirics? Uh, so mm. um, we can do philosophy without empirics, <laughs> just reading, well, depending on your, if you call a book empirics, <laughs> then not, but you read a book uh, of another philosopher and you comment on that and you read, an, you write another book. Um, but, but how, how do you use um, empirics and, and how do you analyze them knowing that um, analyzing them from a sociological perspective or a psychological perspective or a, uh, a more SDS perspective or an anthropological perspective is already very different. But mm. So how, as, as a philosopher, do I uh, yeah, relate to these different approaches and so the different ways of, of using these uh, empirical results? And that was for me one of the. Mm. Um, so it's really the the other side of the coin uh, uh, that that was interesting for me in, in embarking in mm. this uh, uh, endeavor. I, w I wanted to make a short comment on your earlier remark that there are not so much many white people and non-Western people in the discourses, um, Corinna, and um, I mean. We have to be aware how difficult a serious engagement with um, different cultural traditions is. Yeah? So I, I work since 10 years with people from China. Mm. And, I mean, you have not only the language problem and uh, institutional barriers, but, um, I mean, a serious engagement... Yeah, mm -hmm. so not just speaking with a Chinese who knows the same literature you know, but uh, who really comes uh, uh, from a Chinese philosophical tradition. It's it's really a demanding thing, yeah, and it's not uh, not something you do uh, just on Sunday afternoon. It's uh, mm -hmm. so one shouldn't underestimate. Uh, that a really serious scholarly engagement um, uh, on such a level is, um, yeah, what that would mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in, in relation to anthropology, I think it really throws back at us the need to really acknowledge how colonial anthropology has been and how much of the assumption around the anthropological project is still... Yeah. I would say, coloured by colonial relations. So if mm. the kind of, you know, if you're thrown into anthropology with reading some of the classic texts which take mm. Western Europe as normal and everywhere else is needing to be explained, then clearly it's not very attractive to anyone who, who doesn't come from that background. So why would, why would you want to study it? You know, that's a really good question. And that's something that anthropology as a discipline really has a long way further to go to really... Um, address, I think, and, and it's an urgent task, and, and a lot of people are already un underway with thinking about how to do that. 
um, but it's not to be underestimated either. It's a big job. It's a big job of work, and it, it really has to get get moving. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with the two of you. So it's really um, uh, hard work to do that, and and um, it's not easy harvesting <laughs> what what you will be doing. So you put a lot of effort in. And, but the, the nice thing is again that it it uh, makes you think of yourself and, and your own work. And so the mm-hmm. example that Simone and I gave on, on the philosophy and, and, and uh, the empirics, there if if you do this this non-European approaches or, or non-Western approaches, it's it's not on this very this this would then be very simple eh, what we did, but it's it's really really fundamental. Uh, uh, I, I recently did a project on, on, um, bringing together on a, on a very exploratory level all kinds of, uh, philosophies across the world, uh, on, on energy ethics. Um, and I agree with what Marcus says. It's, it's, uh, they, yeah, some people talk about some concepts and it's very, very difficult to, to really mm-hmm. see, okay, what exactly are people talking about? The idea here was to, to, to do it more on an exploratory level. So let's let the voices hear. So let's let people speak. Um, but even then it was very difficult. I, I remember, uh, one of the contributors was from Kazakhstan. So we, uh, because if you do, um, intercultural philosophy, uh, so you do China and you do some indigenous people. So there are the, even there, there are the usual suspects already. Uh, so we, we wanted to, to find other other uh, people and so we find people on Kazakhstan who, who had a they had an, a large nuclear program of the US of the uh, uh, the so- Soviet Union um, but the point was that their style was for me not philosophical and not um, uh, not strict enough so the, it was a it was a text about the great leader Nazarbayev <laughs> And there was philosophy in it, and it was a clear opinion. And I was even, it was all by email, and I was thinking, yeah, what can they say? And, and so do I have to read between the lines? Is that the culture I hear? And so they, they were critical, but you really had to read between mm-hmm. the lines. Mm-hmm. So I never spoke to them in, in, in real life. So I had to send back emails saying, can you be a little bit more critical? So even between my lines, I had to be, uh, <laughs> also uh careful and then it went back and forth uh, a while and so the the result was a bit more what i would call philosophy but it still was a kind of uh, a hymn for nazarbayev <laughs> um with a lot of philosophical elements in it against the the against russia <laughs> and then the question is okay i put a lot a lot of time in this uh to to make this what what is it worth? And for me, it's it's worth a lot because I learned a lot there. But uh, I will never be able to publish anything on that <laughs> together with them in in a journal. And so yeah. because it was a, a um, uh, an edited volume, this was possible. Uh, but I found it really interesting. I think this was the for me the most interesting chapter to to edit, not the ones who, who yeah some people from the UK working with. With people from India who live already for 30 years in the States and they just write something on Indian ethics and blah, blah, blah. That's not where mm-hmm. the change happens. So it's, it's again coming back to, to Marcus point of, of 
where do you invest in, in, in easy articles or in interesting articles that, that, that create things? Yeah. And I think, you know, to, to bring it back to Simona's point earlier about anthropology, the additional challenge of, of not engaging into that work as an anthropologist is that you tend to, to promote uh, very toxic canons uh, towards the groups that you are supposed to represent. And, and that is, that is a little bit, uh, I think, uh, maybe the extra challenge of an anthrop- of anthropology versus other disciplines if you're not engaging if you're not entering that space and trying to dismantle and change and evolve our own theories which are based on uh, colonialistic foundations um what what future does our discipline hold in a world that is intrinsically uh, more intercultural multicultural diverse like what type of knowledge are we actually bringing to the world that is meaningful and valued so from a theoretical perspective. So that's, that's a little bit where my, uh, um, um, my, my kind of, uh, pain, let's say, let's call it in this kind of very, uh, exotic way comes from. But I'm, I'm curious for, for both of you, Gunter and Simone, because we, you talk now, um, we're almost at, uh, at the end of our, uh, conversation and I wanted to ask you just one last question because you've talked about the uh, desires that you had entering this, uh, let's say space of writing this article, looking back. Did you get what you uh, were looking for? Um, I, got, I got something different from what I was looking for. And isn't that the best outcome of research? <laughs> <laughs> I learned something new. Yeah, for me, I was also I was also very satisfied. So both talking about uh, the work I did together with Simona as, as this uh, mm. uh, intercultural philosophy book. So it's I think it's a I don't know who called it the journey. It's a journey, so you just start walking and you don't know where you will end, but it's maybe it's a, a type of research. So some people like to know where they start and where they end, and some like not to know where they end, and maybe that's the difference. Um, any any last words that you would also like to leave us with, Marcus, before we uh, close it off? No, I think uh, in some sense everything is sad. But um, at the end of the day, of course, um, academia is always a multidisciplinary enterprise. Yeah, mm. so that um, you cannot understand anything if you cannot place it in context. Yeah, understanding presupposes that you uh, see what you know, think you know that you see it in uh, relationships to what else could be known. And uh, in that sense, uh, academia is a multidisciplinary endeavor. And that's not new. Yeah, that's, that had ever been the, ever always been the case. But the institutional settings, concrete mm-hmm. questions, that is changing, of course. And that will change in the future. Thank you. The three of you for taking the time to to join me on this uh, podcast episode. Um, I cannot speak for you. I can only speak for myself. It has been a pleasure and an honor to to talk to you. And I feel blessed that I had the chance to do it twice. But for our listeners, this day will have to, uh, this one hour will have to suffice. But thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karina. It's been really, it's been great to talk to everybody again. I hope it will, I hope it will be equally interesting for the listeners. Yeah, I also enjoyed Thanks a lot. it very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.